This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. The Matrix is a computer-generated dream world built to keep us under control in order to change a human being. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Ping.tv. Join the discussion at Ping.tv slash gold. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Dustin Gold with the Dustin Gold Standard on Pain.tv. And I am recording here in Poland. I will be in Poland until August 19th. I will be returning back to the United States. And it has been a great trip. I'm here visiting my wife's family. Her parents live in Poland. She's from Poland. She moved to the United States when she was about 19 years old about uh, 18, 19 years ago. And so she usually goes back every year. And because of COVID land, she was not able to visit uh, the last couple of years. We were going to go over Christmas. And that was all screwed up because of Omicron, you know, Omicron, Omicron, whatever it is. And so I won't travel anywhere if I don't know what the rules and regulations are. And back then, during Christmas, the United States had this rule that you had to be tested to come back into the United States. And I was not going to do that. And then going into Poland at that time, I believe you had to be vaccinated and you had to be tested. Otherwise, you had to quarantine. And we had friends of ours uh, that were from Russia. They went to visit Russia and they got trapped in Russia. And I'm not going to play that game. Number one, I'm not going to get vaxxed and I'm not going to get tested. But I sure as hell, I'm not going to get stuck in some hotel for a week quarantining with four or $5,000 out of my pocket. That is not going to happen. So here in Poland, I shot a lot of video uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Over the weekend, we went with my wife's parents to actually pay respects to their parents who have passed away, uh, and then their parents' parents, and then some uncles, and the cemeteries are unbelievable. See, I grew up uh, in, I was born in 1981 in New Haven, Connecticut, and uh, part of my family was Italian, so they were Catholic, so we would go to the cemetery for funeral, and then you would go visit all the time and leave flowers at the grave, and somehow that sort of slipped away in the United States. Well, that tradition is still here in Poland. The other thing is the cemeteries are just absolutely gorgeous. They pay respects to the dead and they bring flowers and they light candles and leave them on the graves. And I shot some uh, really nice video. I'm in the process of editing this stuff together. Hopefully I'll be able to get it out in the next day or two at pain.tv. And you could join up at pain.tv slash gold. If you're an audio only listener, feel free to continue listening on Apple podcasts and all the other podcast platforms, wherever the show gets pushed out. I am not in charge of that. So I really don't know where it goes, but if you're listening on Apple podcasts, we appreciate uh, five-star reviews. 
and uh comments if you can leave comments it really helps and it means a lot to know that you guys are listening to the show it encourages me to continue to keep making these shows for you now let me just say before i talk a little bit more about poland i owe you guys a part four of the elon musk series as you notice if you're on the pain.tv platform my production is getting a little better a little closer to home but it's not there i don't have my multi-thousand dollar pc tower with my multi-thousand dollar production software with me uh, if I am going to be traveling more, which may be coming up in the future, I will invest in a PC laptop and multiple travel screens so I can produce that level of content on the road. It just so happened that I started this show right around the time that I was leaving for the trip. So I'm using my MacBook and I'm using a software called Streamlabs that I used to use to produce shows, but it's more of a gamer production software. And so I'm not really happy with it. It's very limited in what I can do and it bogs down the system and it runs slow. So I owe you Musk part four, which is where we go further into Neuralink, the brain chip company, and then the investors behind it, all that research I did on the investors connected to the CIA funded hedge fund in QTEL and other hedge funds and venture capitalists involved with artificial intelligence and the replacement of human beings. And so I'm really really, really trying because I have about 45 bookmark websites that are part of that research that I have to show you and I need to be able to play some videos. So I am in the process of trying to get a second screen, which will make it easier for me to produce that even on this rinky dink software. So it won't look as pretty as it usually is, but you will be able to see the articles. And for the people who are on the pain.tv video platform, I want you to be able to see that. So I didn't want to rush and put it out until I could actually do that for you. Now that that's out of the way, let me get back to a little bit of what's going on here in Poland. And so what I learned so far here, there's a few stories that really piqued my interest. One, I was really interested in following back up on this uh, Russia-Ukraine situation. I was waving to uh, my father-in-law. He is out in the driveway with a friend of his. I was going to record with the backdrop of this old um, sort of 1920s, early 1900s house that he bought across the street where he dug a big hole and has a pond that he stocks with fish. But unfortunately, I'm sitting in the garage. I have the door open because there was too much echo in here. So I'm lit well because that's natural light. If I turn around and I have that as the backdrop, you can't see me. I'm in silhouette. So I did shoot a lot of video of this, and I'm working on that little mini doc on Poland, which I'll tell you about in a second. So what I was trying to find out was the situation with Russia, Ukraine, and how the people here in Poland uh, look at that situation, and I did get some good intelligence. And then the second thing was the fallout from that, which is the Ukrainian refugees, quote unquote refugees that are pouring into this country. And I did get some really good intelligence on that. Then over the weekend, we went to visit my wife's uncle, her father's uh, brother, and he has a son who is signed up 18-year contract with the military. He's also a medical doctor. And so he gave me a lot of intelligence from 
sort of the military side of the Russia-Ukraine situation and the Ukrainian refugees. And then yesterday, which was uh, Sunday, we went out to her father's cousin's farm, which is a three-generation old farm. Uh, My wife's father's cousin runs it. His father owned it. And then the father's parents owned it. And now he's probably about 50 years old and he's working on training his son, who's about 20, to take it over. So it's nice to see it will continue. And so I asked a lot of questions about GMOs, genetically modified, uh, uh, genetically modified foods and such, because there were people such as Maria Albanese, who is the Thomas Paine Podcast Friday co-host, wanted me to find out that information because there was legislation adopted amongst eight or nine of the European Union countries back in 2013 that said they were banning the growing of GMOs. And so sometimes things are more complicated than they appear on paper, or at least on the internet. So between what I researched myself And the information I gathered from this farmer and a couple other farmers I spoke to, I am able to report on that. Again, this is based on what I was able to research on the internet and then what this, particularly this one farmer, her father's cousin, very nice guy. But remember, one, my wife is translating for me. I am learning some Polish, but not enough to have a conversation. And so he gave me a lot of information through my wife. She was sort of limited because there was a lot of technical terms, agricultural terms that she's not familiar with in Polish. So she had to kind of look things up and break it down for me. And we video recorded all of that. And I will be putting that into this little kind of Poland docu-series. And so we did get a lot of information on that. And then the the third part is sort of a public interest piece, uh, really a personal interest piece for myself. I am starting to explore purchasing uh, 10 acres out in West Virginia, as I've talked about briefly on the show, and I've talked about with Mike Moore of the Thomas Paine Podcast and with Maria Albanese, Friday's co-host on the Thomas Paine Podcast. And so I'm also toying with this idea of possibly getting some land here in Poland. Uh, My mother and father-in-law have a number of pieces of land. Some they purchased, some were handed down through the generations. And so I got to see a lot of rural land and what it looks like here. And now starting to figure out cost of living and how far you can stretch the dollar. And there's really, really good opportunities here if you can make U.S. money, if you can work remotely like my wife, or like if I do this uh, podcast full-time and some of the web design contracts that uh, I'm involved with. You could live here and you could be very, very, very wealthy. So I will get into more of that in this Poland docu-series that I'll be putting together. But let me cycle back before we get into the content that I'm going to cover today, which is going to be the beginning of a review. It'll probably be five, six, maybe seven parts of a paper that was written in 1995 called Industrial Society and its future. And it's very important that we cover this. I've heard other podcasters mention it. Uh, I've heard people sort of read from it. I've heard some reviews of it, but nothing in depth. And it's a paper that has been on my radar since I was a kid. And so 
it's it's something I think that is very important to today. Now, I'm not going to talk about, although many of you may already know, who wrote this paper until we get to the end, because the person who wrote it does not matter. And to be honest with you, and I don't want to sound cryptic, but I have come to possibly believe over the years with all of the research I've done, the content I've listened to, similar to you folks at home, that sometimes things are not as they appear. And so the person may have been framed. Uh, the person who supposedly wrote this may even be fiction. I don't really know. I don't trust anything. If they opened all of the JFK files tomorrow, would you trust that the documents that they're handing us were locked in some lockbox uh, for over 50 years and nobody touched them, altered them? Are we looking at documents that weren't produced yesterday? Are we looking at video that wasn't chopped up? Is it CGI? Who knows? And so, again, the person who wrote this does not matter. The fact is that this message that came out in 1995 sounds like a piece that you or I or Mike or Maria or VM or anybody associated with Pain.TV and the broadcast coming out of this platform could have written yesterday. And so I think it's, and, and this supposedly versus uh, when we look at the papers by Ray Kurzweil, the chief engineer at Google, when we look at documents or speeches or discussions by Yuval Noah Harari, the prophet, the king philosopher of the World Economic Forum, the right-hand man to Klaus Schwab, when we look at the interviews and the press conferences delivered by people like Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos or Mark Zuckerberg, those are the bad guys trying to push this technology on us. Well, when we look at some of the books and some of the movies like The Matrix or Brave New World or 1984, it's even led to believe that maybe some of that content was propaganda either to, to sort of push this technology, to normalize this technology, to normalize the future technocracy that's coming, that that was that was created as a predictive programming and or in some cases possibly this idea that these bad guys have to tell us exactly what they're going to do to us, right? They have to tell us what they're going to do to us to give us the opportunity to revolt against what they're going to do to us. And when we don't revolt, it means their conscience is clear, their karma is is intact. And so this document itself was written, at least at the time, and as people believe today, by someone who was against this technocracy, like myself, like many of you. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I assume many of you are at least skeptical of this coming technocracy, of this sort of fourth industrial revolution, this era, this bridge to the full technocracy that we find ourselves in today. Because if you were not, then you probably wouldn't be listening to me. So this was supposedly written by someone who is like us, who would be considered to be on our side. Yet this person pegged today with such, such precision, precision that it's frankly unbelievable. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a short commercial break and we come back. I'll tell you a little bit more about Poland and then we will get into this document. And again, this is probably going to be a six, seven, eight 
part series. And also, during the next few episodes, while I'm here in Poland, I'm going to get into a company called RM. AI Foundation, Artificial Intelligence Foundation, founded by a character named Lars Butler, this shady multi-billionaire. And we are going to talk about the program they're developing called Mind Twins, which is really a bridge to the AI hive mind uploading your consciousness that Elon Musk and Ray Kurzweil talk about. Well, this is a company dedicated to that uploading of your consciousness, developing a artificial intelligence-based twin of yourself. And when you see the people behind that company, again, it's further proof that they're actually doing this and our government is involved. One of the board members of that company is Keith Alexander, the former head of the NSA. The NSA, right, involved with a company building an AI hive mind twinning technology. Hard to believe, but we're going to get into that this week as well. And then before I go to break, I will tell you, I started to put parallels together to the old research I used to do, which was into cultural Marxism. I studied in depth people like Saul Alinsky, who was a radical community organizer, who Obama studied and such. And I found these old documentaries out of Canada that I kept on file of Saul Linsky. And the idea with Alinsky communism, progressivism, is that you keep moving forward and there's never an end goal. So you push your minions to keep moving forward until eventually you destroy and tear down the whole system. And when I look at the technocrats, as their push forward is to evolve humanity, right, the human evolution of humans, as Dennis Bushnell at NASA calls it, and Ray Kurzweil and others, that there is no goal in sight. There is no end, and therefore they are going to engineer humans out of existence. And so I'm going to take what the technocrats with their technology are doing and compare that alongside an old-school 60s community organizer like Saul Linsky and show you that the ideology, the ideology behind this progressive mentality ends up in the same place, the destruction of humanity, the eroding of culture, you know, eventually the extinction of humanity, which is the important part. And so it'll be further proof and evidence that we need to show that these people are anti-human, if not for ourselves, but others around us we love who we can hopefully get to wake up and realize that we need to either run from this, we need to protect ourselves from this, or whatever it may be that you choose to do so let's go to a short commercial break this is dustin gold on the dustin gold standard here at pain.tv you're listening to the dustin gold standard on pain.tv join the discussion at pain.tv slash gold you're listening to the dustin gold standard on pain.tv We are back. We are back from the break. Back from the break here in Poland. All right. So what I want to do is I'm going to tell you a little bit about this Poland stuff without ruining the surprise. Because 
I don't want to uh, give away everything yet because, uh, as I said earlier, I'm going to be putting it into a little series. I'm going to turn it into a whole episode. Plus, I have a little bit more investigation to do before I'm completely comfortable with locking this down and saying this is the definitive truth. So right now, in full disclosure, remember, I've talked to some people I've seen some stuff with my eyes. So let's talk about this Russia-Ukraine situation because I was someone who was always skeptical of it. Folks, I never hung my Ukraine flag in my yard. I never put up my Ukraine emojis on uh, social media. And, um, and I, never all, I never went out and praised Vladimir Putin and said that Russia was the hero in this whole situation. From the very beginning... I said that this is just uh, another concocted psychological warfare operation intended to do exactly what it did, which was to start to drive up prices in the United States, to drive up the price of gasoline and food by creating these fake shortages in the United States and also in other Western countries. And so what I found out so far here in Poland, when you talk to people, now I am in a very rural area. It's about two hours from the Warsaw airport, about two hours from Krakow. And so what I found here is when you ask people from Poland about the Russia-Ukraine war, they say, what war? (laughs) And like almost as a joke, what war? And so I had a very in-depth conversation with a gentleman who is a doctor, just finished six, seven years of medical school, and that in Poland here, he signed a deal with the military. So it's an 18-year contract. Basically, they provide food and housing and pay you and uh, pay for your education. And so he became a medical doctor, and his fiance is also a medical doctor. And what they told me... so. As of right now, he's sort of compared to like a National Guard, like a reserve in the United States. So he has to go work at a military base two to three days a week as a doctor. And then he's allowed to work in a hospital as a doctor. And he was very smart, very intelligent, um, spoke pretty good English. And between my wife helping, we were able to have a really good conversation. And so he said, basically, the general consensus, and let me tell you this, so while this is going on, there was a couple tweets that came out that Maria Albanese, uh, the Friday's co-host of the Thomas Paine podcast, sent me, which was basically the United States was rolling tanks into Poland and, and such. And I did not have a chance before I met this kid at dinner to do any research, nor did I know I was going to have the conversation. And so I pulled that up and was talking to him about it. And he said, yeah, Poland basically signed an arms treaty with the United States, was selling them a bunch of weapons. And he said, so what happens over here on the Polish side um, is that the generals will put the orders down to the military, very similar to in uh, the United States in our country. And so they tell them to keep your mouth shut, not to mention it. Uh, Do not talk about this publicly. Do not tell anyone about it. And he said, meanwhile, the generals go on TV and they blab and they talk all about exactly what they were just told they could not speak about. So very similar, very similar to our uh, country. And so he said that the way that the military boots on the ground, and remember, I mean, in full disclosure, again, this is one person's opinion. So now as I meet more people that serve, I'm able to go down a line of questioning quicker 
and try to get more uh, opinions on this. But he said the consensus is that the United States and Russia are actually partnered and they play these games. And the games are then to draw everyone else in and force all these other countries into it, like Poland. If you remember a couple of months ago, Biden came here and basically strong-arm Poland and pushed them into a situation where then Putin was going to cut off their gasoline and their gas prices went way up. So it did what was intended. Also, when you talk to people here, same as the United States, food prices and everything jumped dramatically over the last few months. And so they feel the pain as we do. And so what he said is that they just believe like Russia and the United States are partners. They create controversy and chaos, and then it forces all these other countries into the situation. And I said, well, what do you think of it? And he said, well, I don't really have an opinion because, you know, the truth is we're the little guy and the little guy doesn't have any power. So we just have to do what we're told. And I said, do you mean that as far as the rank and file boots on the ground or the country of Poland? And he said, both boots on the ground. We follow orders from our bosses and our bosses follow orders from what they're told by the United States. So that's just his opinion. Um, He he seemed to really be, um, he was very educated and knowledgeable on the topic and had more information than what we get on the news from uh, our country, which, you know, something that's, that's normal and is expected. So the other part is my wife and I stayed at a little motel. It's equivalent to, um, first off, Poland here is like being stuck 40 years ago in the U.S. It's back to the 1980s. Not a lot of credit cards, not a lot of plastic. People use cash. Um, even the cities, they're not big. Uh, her aunt owns a little baby store that sells baby clothes and games. I mean, you rarely see that kind of stuff in the United States anymore. Uh, and even the big, you know, babies are us and others closed down because Amazon's taking them over. So it's like 1980s here. Uh, and we'll get more into that when I do the little mini doc piece. But what he was telling me, um, oh, so what happened was we went, my wife and I, before I get back to that, my wife and I went and we stayed at this, everybody stayed at her uncle's and it was too crowded. She's pregnant. And so we rented a little room at this kind of motel sixes type thing run by an old polish lady uh and so we go in there and then there's all these little kids running around i shot some video of this and there's a little tent set up in the hallway and they're staying in the tents and my wife said oh those are the ukrainian uh refugees and i said no way really so i I shot a little bit of video of it and a friend of mine from high school i found out on facebook is actually in krakow poland right now And he's supposedly working for a group that's helping usher in all these Ukrainian refugee children and they're housing them in hostels and hotels. So I had done a bunch of research online and there's money flowing here from the government, from NGOs. This is the same thing they did to our country with Mexicans and South Americans. But over the last 30 years, they just pulled it off in the last three to six months. And so what uh, I found out was the number we were hearing in the U.S., like two, two and a half million, they're actually talking about roughly five million Ukrainian refugees dumped into this country over the last few months. Well, they only have a population of 19 million. When we take in between 11 and 33 million illegal aliens, you know, and or 
uh, refugees. We're putting them into a population of 350 million, and that hurts. Well, this is 5 million being dumped into 19 million. That's 25% of their population now coming in. And these people, just like the Mexicans and South Americans in the United States, are being told not to assimilate. They don't have to learn the language. Now, something my wife noticed and her mother, who works in government, noticed almost immediately. Remember overnight with COVID land, all of a sudden these stores had uh, the uh, markers on the ground and they had plexiglass go up and they had sneeze guards and all kinds of promotional stuff and signage. We will save each other. Do not breathe. Do not breathe. You're saving grandma. Well, here, all of a sudden overnight, All of the government literature, the government signs, the banking literature, the banking, marketing, all that kind of stuff. Uh, It's a big thing here, too, like uh, monthly phone cards. So I had to get a SIM card for my phone because I didn't want to pay AT&T a ton of money to have my phone work over here. So I got a SIM card. And now those SIM card marketing, all in Polish and Ukrainian. So you're seeing Ukrainian writing on everything. It popped up literally overnight. All these companies had the marketing ready to go. So as you know, just like in the United States, it's completely organized. Back 20, 25 years ago when the South American, Mexican illegal immigration issue in the United States started heavily, it was like Bank of America one week, Chase Bank the next week, Wells Fargo the next week would start printing everything in Spanish. Well, now you're seeing that right here. In Poland, even when you come out to this rural area where my wife's family lives, when you go into the city, which is about 15 minutes away, you see this all over the mall. It's all over everything. So now the Ukrainian writing is everywhere. So I've documented uh, that as well. And then I did some research and found out they're pumping all kinds of money into this. They're paying the hotels. They're paying the hostels. They're paying families to take all these refugees in. So they start spreading the blood money, the greed money to everyone. And people go, okay, I'll do that. Yeah, you know, half the people are just compassionate. And so they think it's a problem. The other half are skeptical, but they'll take the money. And now slowly what's happening is the government is cutting off the money. So now you're going to have 5 million homeless people spread out all over Poland. And no one will know what to do with them, similar to our tent cities that are in every major city in the United States, because we're importing all of these poor people from countries in which we went and destabilized. Same situation that's happening with Russia-Ukraine war. It is orchestrated destabilization, pushing these people out of their homes. It's horrible for them, too, right into this country to come and destroy Polish culture. So that's something that I will be covering in this mini documentary. And then the third piece is really just how nice Poland is, the cost of living here in Poland. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to jump to a quick commercial break. We do have to stick to the commercial breaks the same way, even though we're in Poland. And when I come back, we are going to talk about Poland as a possible place to live. And then we are going to get into this paper, Industrial Society and its Future. I am Dustin Gold. This is the Dustin Gold Standard. And you are listening to Pain.tv. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Payne.tv. Join the discussion at Payne.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard. All right, folks, this is Dustin Gold, and we are back from the break. Let me tell you a little bit. 
about Poland here. So, one of the great things in this rural area, and I'm comparing this to the um, shopping of property that my wife had been doing in West Virginia, because West Virginia is one of the last frontiers as far as property goes in the United States. In West Virginia, we've been looking at stuff that's, you know, 10 acres, 15 acres, 20 acres, and some of these properties are raw, meaning you're going to have to go in and put a septic system in and put a well in, and some of these properties already have a well and septic. Some do and do not have electricity running to them, so it all depends on what you're looking for, but you can find properties in the range of 50000 up to 250000 This is generally without a home on it, so then you've got to go and build a home. So in this rural area in Poland, I'm starting to look at some properties. My father-in-law was able to grab a, about a two, three-acre property across the street from him with an old sort of 1900s house. Doesn't even have running water. It's basically got to be knocked down. A new house has to be built. But he was able to pick that up for roughly $11,000 U.S. Uh, money. And next door to it, he has another property that he dug a big hole and he let the rain come in and he stocks it with baby fish and they grow up to be big fish and he sits over there and he fishes and then uses that fish to uh, cook and to smoke and such. So there are a lot of these properties around. One of the things here is a lot of people have these massive gardens. A lot of us have been starting to uh, garden this year. Well, these guys have massive, massive gardens all around their homes with these greenhouses with huge, I mean, these are organic heirloom tomatoes, literally this big. I'm not kidding. Uh, for those of you in the audio-only audience, they are the size of like a, like a little gourd pumpkin that you would get for Halloween. I mean, these things are humongous, like a little uh, sourdough loaf of bread. And so they have these... Um, greenhouses and these gardens with beets and carrots and everything is just growing unbelievably well here and so i'm going to show videos of that in this little mini documentary as well which will be available at pain.tv when i am done with it and so a lot of people have this they've got these sort of one two acre plots everything is fenced in here my uh, wife's parents have about a 10-acre lot that they sit on with a lot of woods, uh, forest behind them. It's beautiful, absolutely gorgeous in this rural area. So you can pick up land for a very good price. The other thing is a house like they have, which is a one-level new. They built in 2011, 2013. That cost them about 100000 U.S. to build from ground up, stone driveway and everything, fenced-in yard, electric gate, uh, about a hundred thousand dollars right now it would cost about one forty I figured out, and so in Poland, the average person makes it only about one thousand three hundred and fifty u s d uh per month per month that's about the average so if you could make u s money if you could come here and you and your wife are making say ten thousand dollars a month, you would literally be rich and so you could push your money a long way here in Poland, get a nice piece of land, build yourself a really nice house. So far, I would say this area, I would compare it like, uh, and again, I don't understand really what people are saying. I've learned to communicate with the limited vocabulary I've picked up here and what I knew from my wife and facial expressions, mannerisms. People are just really nice. 
It's very rural and sort of rednecky, similar to what we experience uh, back at home. But I would say these people are back to like 1980s U.S., so they still have a smile on their face. They don't hate life right now. Uh, everyone seems to be very happy. They still drive stick shift cars, uh, manual transmission cars. So as far as that goes, it's great. Now, I went to the deli the other day, and I picked up a whole bunch of meat, like 10 cabanos. They're these uh, long pork uh, sticks, like meat sticks, like the best you know jerky you're ever going to eat. These two giant, like it was a cross between this cabanos and like a cabasa. And then a big piece of this smoked ham. And I paid the equivalent of $8 US. It would have been about $30, $35 in the States at the Polish store we go to. And then my father-in-law just picked up yesterday from his cousin who owned the farm. He was able to pick up this sack of kobasa. It had to be 10 pounds. At the Polish store, that would have been about $12 a pound. So $120 and then he got a huge piece of white sausage, like really good. It was four pounds. That would have been about $12 a pound. So that would have been about $48. So I've been at $168 US. And then about a two pound block of this like amazing head cheese, like chopped up head meat in a jelly. That would have been about 15 a pound at the Polish store. So that would have been 30. So I've been about $198. He paid $32. Uh, U.S. for that. So again, if you have U.S. money here, if you're making U.S. money, you can stretch it really far in Poland. And I think um, with what's happening with the Ukrainian refugees being pushed in, that the World Economic Forum and these other worldwide social engineers pushing the technocracy, they've got to speed up the destruction of cultures like this to get it to where the United States is. Uh, They don't have gay pride parades on every corner here like they do in the united states so they've got a way to ways to go to push this culture but i'm looking at this as a possibility of being maybe able to squeeze another 10 15 years out of some level of normalcy possibly living between here and the united states but we will have to see about that uh as far as taxes go because i know everyone wants to know about that um you pay 17 percent tax to Poland on the first, uh, it's roughly, um, I think, 25, something like $25,000 you pay 17% on. And then anything above that, you're going to pay about 32%, but you can take a lot of deductions. It's a much simpler tax code. So if you set up a little business, similar to the United States, but it's not as much paperwork, again, Roll yourself back to the 1980s U.S. Things were a little bit easier. That's how it is here. Everything is not connected with databases and stuff here uh, as it is in the United States. So there's opportunities here. I'm going to explore it more. I may do a whole two hours just on that cost of living because I've got to get out this week and experience a little bit more. And um, we got to buy some stuff for our baby and things. So I'm going to get a better handle I will say the toothpaste that I buy in the United States for about $5 was a dollar here. So there are a lot of, I bought two drinks at the store the other day, like a, like a cappuccino um, type drink and then like a fruit juice type drink. And it was a dollar 60 us. Now those are $3 or more a piece in the United States right now. 
The only thing here is uh, gasoline is a little bit more than the United States. They sell it by the liter, and it comes out to about $7 a gallon right now, so they're a little higher than the United States. But other than that, so far, land, uh, building a home, food, you know, that cost of living is a lot less than the United States. But if you came here and you were making the average money that someone in Poland would make, it's all relative. So you'd have to make U.S. dollars and then um, be able to live here and buy things in Polish money and you would be very, very wealthy. So it's just an idea. Now, let me talk quickly about the GMO situation and then we're going to get into this paper industrial society and its future. Again, this is one farmer. I uh, briefly talked to a couple others. Because they're not dealing with the same GMO situation that we have, it's a little more complex talking to them about it. It's not as common knowledge, but I did some research that backed up what he said. So in 2013, there was eight or nine, and and I'll get into depth on this in another episode. There was eight or nine countries in the European Union that voted to not grow GMOs. But, but, like anything else that involves politics, These big corporate farms are basically allowed to import GMOs grown in other areas and or possibly grow it themselves. So what happens with this gentleman's farm, and it was big, he grows corn, he grows wheat, he grows cereal wheat, he grows rape uh, seed. And so he processes that along with milk that he takes from the cows that he has. He has dairy cows. And... They sell the milk to a cheese producer. They sell the grains to a manufacturer. That's really the only way to make money for what's considered to be a small farm. They're not a corporate farm. And so they sell that to the manufacturer. And he said once it gets to the manufacturer, the manufacturers blend in GMOs. Now, even though he is organic, he is using certain types of pesticides, as they do in the United States, Uh, and other chemicals as well, but then that food is technically organic. It gets shipped to the manufacturer. The manufacturer, say, processes the rape into oils, and then GMOs are added into that food. And so he said he's pretty sure that's the situation with, you know, the other countries as well, like Italy. They do the same thing. So the GMOs are mixed, and that's done at the manufacturing level, and those guys have control. But the interesting thing that I picked up from him as well, they have a whole private garden area that feeds the family that's incredible. I shot video of that. Literally cabbages the size of basketballs, and they had like 100 of them growing, probably 500 beets. I mean, it, it was really amazing. I picked up a lot of tips that I will share later with you as well for next year when we're all gardening together. But... He um, also said, so one of the mainstays in the Polish uh, culture and the Polish cuisine is pork. So oh, they have breakfast, then they have dinner at about 3, 30, 4 o'clock, and then supper at about 7 or 8 o'clock. But they have, you know, breads and pastries, but then bacon and sausage, you know, like kielbasa and the cabanos and the smoked hams and everything else. So either you're buying those from like a local small deli, similar to the delis we had all over when I was a kid 30 years ago, uh, even more so before I was born, they have those delis. And then the a lot like my father-in-law, he has a big smoker he built and he smokes his own bacon and his own sausage and everything. But this farm, he used to raise pigs 
and then he would make a ton of sausage every six months for his family and then to sell. Well, over the last several years, because of bureaucracy and politics, they made it basically impossible for small farms to have pigs now because of the amount of regulations, and you just can't buy them. Only the big farms, the corporate farms, have the pigs, and they will not sell the pigs to the small farms. So now he's a farmer who can't have pigs, who now has to buy sausage from a butcher friend of his, so he's getting a good quality, but he is not allowed to have pigs. So now the small farms don't even have the pigs, which is the pork, which is the mainstay of a Polish diet. So there you go with politics and bureaucracy. They've squeezed out the little guy, and now the corporate farmers own all of the pigs. Very similar to what we see going on in the United States going on over here. So there's pros and cons to everywhere that you're going to live or you're going to settle down. But that's why I find this stuff to be fascinating because we are able to look at these other cultures and the similarities between ours and theirs. And so that's all I'm going to do with with Poland right now. I want to get this video out to you. I may chop up some clips and put them out in the next episode, but I really want to edit it all together and show you sort of Polish culture and then go through some of my ideas on how I might build a homestead over here too. We're really thinking about it. Um, it. It is a possibility. It's almost so cheap that you would have to be stupid not to. The only issue that we're going to run into is travel. Are they going to lock stuff down again? Are they going to require vaccines for monkeypox or whatever else, whatever other disease they're going to come up with for the week? So that's something we have to take into consideration. Again, as I learn, you learn, and I will be sharing all of the information and the intelligence and the knowledge that I gather for myself along with you. Let's take a quick break. I am Dustin Gold. This is the Dustin Gold Standard, and I'll be right back. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Payne.tv. Join the discussion at pain.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on pain.tv. Folks, we are rocking and rolling here. I am Dustin Gold. This is the Dustin Gold Standard. And I am in Poland, enjoying delicious meats and pastries. All the salty meats your little heart can desire. But it won't remain that little if you keep eating those salty meats. All right, folks, I want to jump into this paper that I told you about, Industrial Society and Its Future. And for the audio audience, I am going to read it to you as I normally do. And for the video audience, it is up on the screen. Folks, this is Industrial Society and Its Future. And I think I'm going to wait, as I mentioned earlier, to tell you about who wrote this, because that's going to take one or two episodes by itself. And I don't want to mention who it is up front, other than it is a good time for me to review this here, because... The person who wrote it came from Polish ancestry, and his parents, he grew up in Chicago in a Polish area, and his parents, uh, 
his father was actually a Polish sausage maker. So it kind of really ties in. I was trying to think before I left for Poland when I was going to get to this paper and read it to you and analyze it for you and compare it to what's going on today. And I said on the plane over here, you know what? This is perfect because I didn't even think about the Polish connection. So let's get into this right now. Industrial society and its future. Introduction one, and this is broken up into uh, clips. So one, the industrial revolution and its consequences have been a disaster for the human race. And interesting that he brings up, the writer, the author brings up the industrial revolution, as many of us are now facing the false industrial revolution, as Klaus Schwab, our dear leader, would say. So let's get back. The industrial revolution and its consequences have been a disaster for the human race. They have greatly increased the life expectancy of those of us who live in, quote, advanced, end quote, countries. But they have destabilized society, have made life unfulfilling, have subjected subjected human beings to indignities have led to widespread psychological suffering in the third world to physical suffering as well and have inflicted severe damage on the natural world now let's just think about this now there are going to be some parts of this that you don't agree with there are going to be parts of this that are sort of a hard pill to swallow i myself in full disclosure Uh, and I said I would get into this probably back in episode one or two, am I a technophobe? Do I, am I against technology? Well, I do understand that right now I am talking to you. We are able to communicate in almost real time on pain.tv. I will be doing live shows that are going to allow me to talk with you guys on the phone and over chat message. I do understand that I am currently benefiting from technology. I understand that I have air conditioning at home. I understand I drive a car and I have a phone and I have a computer. I get all that. The question is, if I could snap my fingers and make it all go away, would I? You know, I grew up in, I was born in 1981. I went to college in 1999. I was the last generation to not grow up with the internet in my pocket. There was no iPhone when I was in high school. And so I remember the days of playing outside in the woods that surrounded my house and riding my bike all over town to visit my friends and lighting fires and hitting frogs with baseball bats and using bow and arrows and such. And I, when I step back and have stepped back over the years and looked at where we are today from where we came from, and this isn't just somebody who is an old guy now because I'm 41 years old saying this. This is someone, I've looked at this for 10 years, 15 years, even 20 years ago in college when I was being pushed into having to utilize technologies that I was not happy with, doing computer sculpting instead of sculpting by hand. I went to school for industrial design. It wasn't rejecting the technologies. I saw the technologies as making humans actually lazier and making humans less sort of proud of what they do is almost being replaced. So instead of sitting down and drawing 
uh, a design, you were then using a program to do it. And some of that art, some of that skill was taken away by the software, by the technology. And so am I against technology? No, but I don't believe in the end, and the end will prove this, that technology and natural life can coexist because technology will always move towards the destruction of natural life, the destruction of humanity. And I think that is what we are going to see. And if you hear some background noise, I apologize. They're working on a house across the street, and I cannot help it. Uh, Unfortunately, I'm not at home in my studio. But fortunately, I'm here in Poland. But so what I think with technology is that in the end, technology is going to overwhelm humanity, and therefore the two cannot coexist. Does that mean I'm against it? Well, I don't know. It's a necessary evil right now because almost none of us could survive or work or provide for our family without technology. We're forced into it right now. Is it a necessary evil? It's a necessary evil in this moment. I don't think it's necessarily necessary if it did not exist. Humans survived 99.999% of their life on this earth without the modern technologies that we have today. So let's get back to this. And, And he will discuss a little bit about overpopulation as it plays into this. You may or may not agree, but try to not look at this politically. Try to look at this as something as is a philosophical document and a scientific document from from this person's perspective and from their background and their understanding of sciences. And this supposedly was a brilliant man, a mathematician. So try to just not look at this like, oh, I don't agree with that politically today, so I'm not going to listen to the overall message. So they have greatly increased the life expectancy of those of us who live in advanced countries, but they have destabilized society, have made life unfulfilling, have subjected human beings to indignities, have led to widespread psychological suffering in the third world to physical suffering as well, and have inflicted severe damage on the natural world. You really cannot argue with that. The continued development of technology will worsen the situation. Remember, this is written in 1995, 27 years ago. The continued development of technology will worsen the situation. It will certainly subject human beings to greater indignities and inflict greater damage on the natural world. Again, you cannot argue with that. Looking where we are today, it's all true. Okay, it's all true. We're replacing humans every day with robots. I posted an article on Twitter saying, hey, Maria Albanese and I talked about this. Mike Moore has talked about this. They are opening a grocery store, a pilot, I think it's North Carolina or South Carolina, where you literally walk in and there's no humans working there. So when it says that... um, they will bring greater indignities and inflict greater damage on the natural world. That's true. It will probably lead to greater social disruption and psychological suffering, and it may lead to increased physical suffering even in advanced countries. And think about it, greater social disruption and psychological suffering. Where are we today? How are people after technology really pushed forward during COVID land, right? Think about it, the psychological suffering. Think about all of the social issues, 
all of the mental illness, all of the trauma, all the problems we have with our children, all of this sort of pride movement stuff that we're dealing with. That's all social disruption and psychological suffering. And it may lead to increased physical suffering, even in advanced countries. And he always puts advanced in quotations, right? Because we like to say advanced, but are they really that advanced? And think about that physical suffering. Of course, there's physical suffering. As humans are going to be unemployed, they are starving, they can't pay their bills, that's suffering. That's physical and mental, but physical through mental. And then you also have, with the advancements in technology, uh, people are eating worse and worse food, right? Brought on by these GMOs that we talked about, this genetic modification. Number two, the industrial technological system may survive or it may break down. Now, again, this is 27 years ago. So there was already this industrial technological system that this author is talking about. But when you think about what's happening now with the World Economic Forum over the last two years wanting to push the button on the Great Reset and now usher us into the next industrial revolution, the fourth industrial revolution, into the fourth industrial era. And what is the main excuse that Klaus Schwab and the rest of these you know, authoritarian, dystopian tyrants talk about is the destruction of the climate, the pollution. I don't believe that all that is made up. I believe there are climate problems. I do believe there's pollution. I believe that actually comes from all of these products, all the dirtying of the planet by the very people who are claiming there's a problem. I believe there's a problem with weather because of the geoengineering and the chemicals that these guys admit to spraying in the air. I think they created the very problem that they try to blame on us. So is it man-made? Oh yeah, man-made by them. We are generally just the consumers or we work in factories where or work for businesses that produce this type of stuff in which we have no other choice. Otherwise, we wouldn't have a job and we wouldn't be able to buy things at the store. They sell water in the plastic petroleum-based bottles and put them on the shelf, and I have to buy them. I don't make them. I don't make the petroleum-based plastic. The Koch brothers and others do. So the industrial technological system may survive or it may break down. If it survives, it may eventually achieve a low level of physical and psychological suffering, but only after passing through a long and very painful period of adjustment and only at the cost of permanently reducing human beings and many other living organisms to engineered products and mere cogs in the social machine. Think about that. Basically, reducing human beings and other living organisms to engineered products and mere cogs in the social machine. What did Elon Musk, what did Ray Kurzweil call us? They said that we were going to be nodes, nodes within the system. Yuval Noah Harari said that. You have no soul, you have no spirit, you have no free will, you are a hackable animal, you are a node in the system. You are a node in the artificial intelligence hive mind. And so think about it. Think about what this guy predicted 27 years later, that eventually we would be rendered to just cogs in the social machine. And that's everything that I've showed you. And I did not do this on purpose. I haven't read this paper in three years. 
And so this is fresh for me. I wanted to read it again. I said, well, I might as well turn it into a show and read it to you because you need to understand this. You need to see that there were people predicting exactly where we are today, 27 years ago, who was supposedly on our side of the argument, not someone who was doing uh, propaganda or predictive programming, although I'm not sure of that. Now that I look at this in hindsight, it could be just that. But cogs in the social machine. Furthermore, if the system survives, the consequences will be inevitable. There is no way of reforming or modifying the system so as to prevent it from depriving people of dignity and autonomy. Think about that right there. There is no way of reforming or modifying the system so as to prevent it from depriving people of dignity and autonomy. So what they're saying is there's no way to actually reform or to change this technological system to prevent it from overtaking humanity, from taking your human dignity, from taking your autonomy as a human. I mentioned this. I mentioned in a past episode that they want to take your very dignity as a human. They want to steal that from you. And now you are seeing it come true. And it was predicted 27 years ago. I am Dustin Gold. This is the Dustin Gold Standard. And we will be right back after this short commercial break. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Pain.tv. Join the discussion at Pain.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Pain.tv. All right, folks, we are back. This is Dustin Gold right here on Pain.tv. And you're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard where we are reviewing industrial society and its future a paper written over 27 years ago in 1995 and before the break we got into a big point which is that there's no way of reforming or modifying this technological system so as to prevent it from depriving people of dignity and autonomy and think about it 27 years ago did you have people sitting in parking lots Staring at their phone, flipping, 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 refreshing, 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 trying to get a grocery delivery order from Instacart, or freaking out, thinking they're going to lose their home, or they're not going to be able to pay their rent, or they're not going to be able to put food on the table because they can't pick up another order from McDonald's to drop off at some other poor person's house. That's dignity, folks. That is dignity and autonomy we'll get into because it's a very important part of us. It's wired into our very DNA. And so again, this paper was written 27 years ago. Let's get into part three. If the system breaks down, the consequences will still be very painful. But the bigger the system grows, the more disastrous the results of its breakdown will be. So if it is to break down, it had best break down sooner rather than later. And so 
we already know what the outcome was. The system did not break down. The technological system, the governmental system, the government structure around the world has only grown stronger, not weaker. And therefore, the technological system, the technocracy, which is just a government ruled by the scientists and ruled by the engineers, and in this case, the people managed and controlled by this technological prison planet, has only gotten stronger. And so the case this author was making 27 years ago was if the system was going to break down and collapse, it would be painful, yes, but it would be less painful than if the system were to break down and collapse today. Think about it. It would be. We are now another one, two generations into people who were born into technology that the phone, that video games, that doing everything from a computer screen, from a tablet is now built into them. It's part of their body. It's an extension of their very being. As Elon Musk and others have told us, people are cyborgs. Ray Kurzweil and others have talked about it. Dennis Bushnell, the NASA chief scientist for the last 40 years, bragged about how three-year-olds have computers and how they're using their phones to text each other instead of communicate on a playground. You see, the fall from technology today would be much more painful than the fall 27 years ago. Do I think it's going to fall? No. Do I see a breakdown coming? No. The only way a true breakdown comes and not orchestrated. So we're not talking about if the elites, if the World Economic Forum and their cohorts organize a power outage to starve out a bunch of people. I'm talking about if a meteor struck or something like that and it took out the satellites and the internet, it would be a hard fall for sure. Everything, everything, our homes, our food supply chains are all run on technology, so it would be difficult. But... It would also be, I I mean, I think in the end it would actually end up better than where we are headed, but that's just my belief, and we'll discuss this as we go on throughout this piece. Let's get into part four. We therefore advocate a revolution against the industrial system. So to tell you, this author was writing we as if it was representative of a group, of a mentality. So let's say I was writing this, I'd say, Speaking on your behalf, if you give me that permission, we therefore advocate a revolution against the industrial system. This revolution may or may not make use of violence. It may be sudden. Again, this is his words, not my words. I don't want to get thrown off any platforms for invoking violence. This revolution may or may not make use of violence. It may be sudden or it may be a relatively gradual process spanning a few decades. We can't predict any of that, but we do outline in a very general way the measures that those who hate the industrial system should take in order to prepare the way for a revolution against that form of society. So basically, he's laying this case that there could be a revolution against the industrial technological system. Although I've said on this show, I don't see it happening. And you'll see in this paper, I don't necessarily agree 
that the tactics and the strategy he laid out even 27 years ago would be effective and they were obviously not effective or we would not be finding ourselves facing the World Economic Forum, the Fourth Industrial Revolution and the technocracy that we're moving into. This is not to be a political revolution. Its, obje- uh, its object will be to overthrow not governments, but the economic and technological basis of the present society. Right, So he's talking about overthrowing the economic and technological basis of the present society. The technological part, yes, but as you can see, it's alive and well. And I think part of the purpose of the World Economic Forum being put in charge of think tanking the Great Reset and then ushering us into this fourth industrial revolution is to collapse the third industrial era and move us into a more technological system. And here is where I will go on a little bit of a tangent because it's important. If you want to break things down and look at the world pre-Trump from a conservative liberal perspective or a right-left perspective or a Republican-Democrat perspective... Generally, the Republicans and the Democrats were arguing about the same problems, right? Same problems. Taxes are too high, uh, you know, more time with your family, less time at work, college loans. I mean, generally the same set of problems. The issue is that the solutions were so far apart. The Republicans used to, used to, used to, not anymore, they used to advocate at least through lip service, for smaller governments. So the solution to high taxes was that they advocated for less government, less taxes. The left solution generally was for more government. So if you took, the let's say, the 2016 to 2020 era with, say, a Donald Trump representing the conservatives and a Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders, hey, Bernie Sanders, we're going to go 0.01% of the 1% and 0.02% of the bagel and put the locks on the bagel. I'm going to eat the bagel and the locks and the pickled herring and the pickled cucumbers. We're going to eat the pickled cucumbers in Brooklyn and put it over here. We're going to put it here. No, I'm not going to do it, Bernie. We're not going to do it. You're so stupid. So stupid. Look at Bernie. So dumb. He looks like... Doc Brown, Doc Brown, everybody knows Doc Brown, so beautiful, from Back to the Future. Who wouldn't want to go back to the future? I know a lot about futures, and I love to grab the backs. You know the backs? The backside, unbelievable. And so, no, if you take Trump and Bernie, you would have people arguing about sort of the same problem, but the solution from the left was bigger government. The solution from the right was supposedly less government. And you're seeing that coming out of the World Economic Forum. The solution to the problems they lay out, like climate change and population and all of this other stuff, their solution is always more technology, where my solution would be less technology. Roll it back and reduce the size of government, roll it back and get rid of technology. Now, their solution to fixing the problems that they created through technology is to develop more technology to manage the problems created by technology you see how it works do you understand what i'm saying because it's i mean it's important to get this the the left and right generally argued about the same problems the cost let's say let's say the cost of living is high 
So the Republicans would say, reduce the size of government, cut the cost of living, because we, the government won't cost as much to operate. The left would say, grow government bigger, let's have more programs to investigate the cost of living, let's give people money, let's tax more to give more away. Well, the technologists are the same. So it's always this problem-reaction-solution. Create the problem, provoke the reaction from the plebeians, us, and then offer the solution, which is more government, more technology. And that's what we're seeing uh, that they're talking about here. This is not to be a political revolution. Its object will be to overthrow not governments, but the economic and technological basis of the present society. So they want reduction in technology they were advocating for. Let's do number five. Five, in this article, we give attention to only some of the negative developments that have grown out of the industrial technological system. Other such developments we mention only briefly or ignore altogether. Um, Other such developments we mention only briefly or ignore altogether. This does not mean that we regard these other developments as unimportant. For practical reasons, we have to confine our discussion to areas that have received insufficient public attention or in which we have something new to say. So it's very important. It's like these shows that I do. Every one of the episodes I've done, I could have made them 100 hours with everything I wanted to talk about, but you have to boil it down into sort of these two-hour shows. Otherwise, it's too much for people to swallow. And I also don't want to necessarily be redundant and talk about what others have talked about. I'm trying to take this complex subject and boil it down into layman's terms and talk to you about it in the way that I understand it uh, and try to simplify it for you. And that's what they're going to do in this paper. So, for example, since there are well-developed environmental and wilderness movements, we have written very little about environmental degradation or the destruction of wild nature, even though we consider these to be highly important. So, that just echoes what I said, is that we're breaking this down. Uh, This paper is going to be broken down, and they're going to talk about the important parts back 27 years ago, but you're going to see how those things they're discussing are so relevant to today, and did this paper that was published widely across the country have any effect on accelerating or decelerating the advancement of the technological system in which we find ourselves in today? And unfortunately, it did not. Ladies and gentlemen, I am Dustin Gold. This is the Dustin Gold Standard, and I will be right back after this short commercial break. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on pain.tv. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Payne.tv. Join the discussion at Payne.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Payne.tv. my dignity in the united states and i'll leave my voice in poland now ladies and gentlemen we are back to covering industrial society and its future 
a paper written in 1995, 27 years ago, having to do with what the future would look like if the technological industrial system was not uh, overthrown, was not stopped. And so we find ourselves 27 years later where none of that occurred. Nothing was stopped. Nothing was undone. Nothing was even slowed down. And in the last two years since COVID land kicked off in March of 2020, it has only accelerated. I see ourselves in a different world um, since the 2016 beginning of Donald Trump's presidency, you know, beginning of 2017, but the campaign of 2015-16. Uh, and I don't see things really through the right, left, conservative, liberal lens anymore. But this paper really is going to open your eyes and explain to you some of what you have witnessed over the years and kind of it's going to make a lot more sense to you so let's get into this section the psychology of modern leftism and remember this is from 1995 the psychology of modern leftism six uh, part six almost everyone will agree that we live in a deeply troubled society and in 95, that was probably accurate. Today, it's accurate as too. Everyone has a grievance. They all believe society is troubled. Whether you identify as the right or the left or Biden or Trump, you agree that something is troubled. Nothing is perfect. One of the most widespread manifestations of the craziness of our world is leftism. I repeat, one of the most widespread manifestations of craziness of our world is leftism. So a discussion of the psychology of leftism can serve as an introduction to the discussion of the problems of modern society in general. Did you get that? Did you understand what he's saying? Discussion of the psychology of leftism, the psychology of leftism, can serve as an introduction to the discussion of the problems of modern society in general. So we'll start with leftism, and then we're going to move through society overall. Number seven, but what is leftism? And this is good that they're defining it because we used to define things. Now everything is, is are these blurred lines. There used to be black and white. Everything now is gray. So I'm glad that this author was defining this in 95. What is leftism? During the first half of the 20th century, leftism could have been practically identified with socialism, right? And so we were shouting that, many of us that came from the conservative side were shouting that for years, that leftism was practically identified with socialism. Today, and this is in 1995, the movement is fragmented, and it is not clear who can probably uh, properly be called a leftist. So see, in 95, there was the breakdown of these labels, very similar to what I was talking about during our time, modern time. When we speak of leftists in this article, we have in mind mainly socialists, collectivists, quote, politically correct, end quote, types, feminists, gay and disability activists, animal rights activists, and the like, okay? So we're talking leftists as socialists, collectivists, politically correct types, feminists, gay and disability activists, animal rights activists, and the like, all of which could be considered a Trump conservative. Hmm. 
Think about that. But not everyone who is associated with one of these movements is a leftist. Well, he just clarified it. What we are trying to get at in discussing leftism is not so much movement or an ideology as a psychological type, or rather a collection of related types. Thus, what we mean by leftism will emerge more clearly in the course of our discussion of leftist psychology. In paragraphs 227, 230, he's going to get into this. We are in paragraph 7 right now. Moving on to paragraph 8. Even so, our conception of leftism will remain a good deal less clear than we would wish, but there doesn't seem to be any remedy for this. All we are trying to do here is indicate in a rough and approximate way the two psychological tendencies that we believe are the main driving force of modern leftism. And the parts that we're reading right now is his introduction into the paper because he's trying to sort of introduce you to what he's going to talk about and then sort of break down uh, some of the labels, uh, definitions of the labels that he has to use in order to make this case. We by no means claim to be telling the whole truth about leftist psychology. Also, our discussion is meant to apply to modern leftism only. We leave open the question of the extent to which our discussion could be applied to the leftists of the 19th and early 20th centuries. So he's talking about in current times, 1995. But you will see The labels may have changed, but the psychology of the type of person he's describing has definitely not changed. Number nine, paragraph nine, the two psychological tendencies that underlie modern leftism, we call, quote, feelings of inferiority, end quote, feelings of inferiority, right? And, quote, over socialization, end quote. So he's talking about the two psychological tendencies of the modern left of 95 were feelings of inferiority and over socialization. And I would argue, if I were writing a paper today, that the people that I would classify on the left or who would identify as left, even many who actually identify on the right but kind of snuck over to the right, But I would say that you'd classify those two psychological tendencies to be the same today as it was in 95, feelings of inferiority and over-socialization. Of course, the people that identify as the left would never admit to have feelings of inferiority. Over-socialization, I believe, is something that they take pride in. Feelings of inferiority are characteristic of modern leftism as a whole, while over-socialization is characteristic only of a certain segment of modern leftism. But this segment is highly influential. So he's saying that the feelings of inferiority encompass all of the leftists, where the over-socialization is a segment of leftism, but it's one of the most highly influential segments of leftism Therefore, it's important for us to understand this. Moving on to the next section, feelings of inferiority. Paragraph 10, 
By feelings of inferiority, we mean not only inferiority feelings in the strict sense, but a whole spectrum of related traits. So these are related traits of the leftists. Low self-esteem, I agree. Feelings of powerlessness, oh, I agree. Depressive tendencies, yes. Defeatism, yes. Guilt, yes. Self-hatred, etc. So, one of the key two components of a leftist is feelings of inferiority, right? And over-socialization. And under feelings of inferiority, we have a spectrum of traits, which are low self-esteem, feelings of powerlessness, depressive tendencies, defeatism, guilt, self-hatred, and others. We argue that modern leftists tend to have some such feelings, possibly more or less repressed, and that these feelings are decisive in determining the direction of modern leftism. And I would agree with that. You're going to see this all this all plays a part in why society has broken down to where it is and why I believe that these technocrats are able to manipulate us and why they are winning this war against humanity. That's what I see it as. It's a war against humanity. It's anti-humans versus humans. But we humans just don't recognize that yet. So, number 11, when someone interprets as derogatory almost anything that is said about him or about groups with whom he identifies, we conclude that he has inferior inferiority feelings or low self-esteem. Think about how true that is. The left is always, 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 always offended, 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 offended if they're gay and you don't like it, offended if their friend is gay, if they just identify with a group of gays, offended if they think that you don't like black guys, offended by every single thing. They could be the whitest person in the world. They could look like Casper the Friendly Ghost. They could look like Powder from the movie. And yet these people are highly offended if they think in any way whatsoever that you are demeaning black people. This tendency is pronounced among minority rights activists, whether or not they belong to the minority groups whose rights they defend. See, that's what I was just talking about. They are hypersensitive about the words used to designate minorities and about anything that is said concerning minorities. The terms Negro, Oriental, handicapped or chick for an African, an Asian, a disabled person, or a woman originally had no derogatory connotation. Broad and chick were merely the feminine equivalents of guy, dude, or fellow. That's all true. The negative connotations have been attached to these terms by the activists themselves. This is what we talk about, how these people hijack terms. They hijack symbols like the rainbow. Who the hell gave them the right to take the rainbow? Some animal rights activists have gone so far as to reject the word pet and insist on its replacement by animal companion. And we still see that to this day. Leftists 
anthropologists go to great lengths to avoid saying anything about primitive peoples that could conceivably be interpreted as negative, right? This is how we redefine the terminology in science, how we're redefining terminology even in English class and history because everything is offensive. They seem almost paranoid about anything that might suggest that any primitive culture is inferior to our own. And then in parentheses, authors note, we do not mean to imply that primitive cultures are inferior to ours. We merely point out the hypersensitivity of leftist anthropologists. And that is 100% true. It's 100% true. They change the language and they've hijacked words and terms and changed definitions. Right now, we are literally changing Sex, we are changing gender, are we not? Are we not? We are. That's a continuation of what this author discusses in 1995. Folks, I am Dustin Gold. This is the Dustin Gold Standard, and I will be right back after this short commercial break. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on pain.tv. Join the discussion at pain.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Payne.tv. All right, folks, we are back from the break, live from the enchanted land of Poland. I'm going to eat good tonight, folks. I think we're doing fish or something like that. Fish, 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 and more sausage. So let's jump right back into this. We are reviewing Industrial Society and Its Future, a paper written in 1995, 27 years ago, and how true the statements were, the analysis was in this paper as compared to where we are. Unbelievable. It was like someone was telling the future. It's like you and I sat down together last night and we wrote this paper about today. So right now we are explaining the traits of leftists. Paragraph 12, those who are most sensitive about, quote, politically incorrect, end quote, terminology are not the average black ghetto dweller, Asian immigrant, abused woman, or disabled person, but a minority of activists, many of whom do not even belong to any, quote, oppressed, end quote, group, but come from privileged strata of society. Are we not seeing this all today? It is the children of wealthy individuals that feel the most oppressed, that talk about saving the oppressed, that go into careers to save the oppressed when they are not even oppressed themselves, right? Political correctness has its stronghold among university professors who have secure employment with comfortable salaries, and the majority of whom are heterosexual white males from middle to upper middle class families. That is all true. It's true today. I would say go back to pre-Trump, pre-COVID land. And it was easier to define things, but we were fighting with the, the liberalism, the leftism growing out of universities 
Uh, now I start to talk about the CIA money that's pumped into the universities and the projects connected to such. But just think about the leftist universities and these people, these professors that lead these children down the paths of leftism, and they get to hate, get they get these kids to hate themselves. And now it's in schools because all the young teachers were brought up in the system to hate the color of your skin, to hate the fact that you were American, to hate the fact that you're middle class. Hate, hate, hate. Everything is about hating yourself. Paragraph 13. Many leftists have an intense identification with the problems of groups that have an image of being weak. Example, women. Defeated. Example, American Indians. Repellent. Example, homosexuals. Or otherwise, inferior right? The leftists have an intense identification with the problems of groups that have an image of being weak. So women, American Indians, homosexuals. The leftists themselves feel that these groups are inferior. And I've made this argument for years. They actually believe those groups are inferior, which is why they project that onto them. They would never admit to themselves that they have such feelings but it is precisely because they do see these groups as inferior that they identify with their problems. See that? This makes so much sense. This probably answers all of your questions of why the leftists are the way they are. My question is why the people who identify on the right argue with leftists without understanding this psychology behind the leftists and realizing you're not going to argue with them and you're never going to break through. This also has to do with the uh, right brain and the left brain. The left brain being more analytical, the right being more creative. And then uh, author's note, we do not mean to suggest that women, Indians, etc. are inferior. We are only making a point about leftist ideology. Paragraph 14, feminists are, um, feminists are desperately anxious to prove that women are as strong and capable as men. Clearly, they are nagged by a fear that women may not be as strong and as capable as men. Think about that. That is so brilliant. That is so brilliant. I just said, and this could go with not just the feminist, but any of these other subgroups that this author speaks of. But think about it. Feminists are desperately anxious to prove that women are as strong and as capable as men, clearly they are nagged by a fear that women may not be as strong and as capable as men. It's just that that when you break, this is why I love this paper, because like when we spoke with Legal Man, when we speak with Maria Albanese, I like to break things down for you in the videos that I create to simple common sense terms. And this paper does this. This, when I read it years ago, really helped me understand the mind of a leftist. It really did. I mean, it's amazing. And it will get into the mind of someone on the right as well. This is an equal uh, equal opportunity offender here. That's what makes it so great. And I just realized for the um, video audience that I did not have the split screen up, and I apologize for that. Again, I'm working on archaic technology. See, I rolled us back to the third industrial era, and now 
I'm not able to survive in it. Uh, paragraph 15, leftists tend to hate anything that has an image of being strong, good, and successful. They hate America. They hate Western civilization. They hate white males. They hate rationality. And I would say when this is written in 95, that was 100% accurate. And I would say 27 years later, we just see the evolution of that thought process. It's only gotten worse. It's only progressed. But what's happening, and, and we'll tie this all together with a pretty little bow in future episodes, that this leftist progressive ideology is what led us into the technocracy to the point where they actually hate humanity itself and therefore they want to engineer humanity out of existence through technologies like the AI hive mind, like the AI brain chip, like genetic modification and eventually replacing us, we humans, with artificial intelligence and robots and some kind of Frankenstein biological, genetically modified, non-human bodies. The reason that leftists give for hating the West, etc., clearly do not correspond with their real motives. They say they hate the West because it is warlike, imperialistic, sexist, ethnocentric, and so forth. But where these same faults appear in socialist countries, Uh, or in primitive cultures, the leftist finds excuses for them, or at best, he grudgingly admits that they exist, whereas he enthusiastically points out and often greatly exaggerates these faults where they appear in Western civilization. Thus, it is clear that these faults are not the leftist's real motive for hating America and the West He hates America and the West because they are strong and successful. You see, that is such a great point. You know, the leftist will point at America and say he hates it for a list of reasons. But when you point out those same problems in socialist countries, let's say like healthcare, for instance, then they come up with excuses for these countries. But I see the same thing occur on the other side where people who love Donald Trump will do mental gymnastics in order to protect him from his leftist policies, traditionally leftist policies, or his pushing of the vaccine and do mental gymnastics in order to protect him, to cover for him, so that they can continue to support him. And so they're saying is the left will do these mental gymnastics Uh, in order to cover for socialist countries or more primitive cultures. So it actually has nothing to do with that. It just has to do with the fact that they hate this concept of America because America is strong. And I personally believe, it does not get into this in this paper, but I personally believe on the right, what happens with people defending Trump is even though Trump was big government and pushing the vaccines, they need someone to run to Uh, that's got to be their hero, their savior, and therefore they can never admit that Trump is wrong because it would mean they are wrong and it would mean that they don't have a hero. And without Trump, you have to face true liberty and true freedom, which I believe humans are afraid of, and we'll get into that in future episodes. 
So paragraph 16, words like, quote, self-confidence, quote, self-reliance, quote, initiative, quote, enterprise, quote, optimism, etc., play little role in the liberal and leftist vocabulary. The leftist is anti-individualistic, pro-collectivist. Now see, those words, self-confidence, self-reliance, initiative, enterprise, optimism, those words are what I would say the right embraced back in 95. I don't necessarily know if the right embraces that in 2002. We'll delve into that at another point. He wants society to solve everyone's problems for them, satisfy everyone's needs for them, take care of them. He is not the sort of person who has an inner sense of confidence in his ability to solve his own problems and satisfy his own needs. That's exactly what I was just talking about that I see sort of brewing in the the right or what the right is now. People are afraid of true liberty, true freedom, rugged individualism, making it on your own. True freedom, if I was dumped in the middle of a farmland, could I farm it? Could I make it happen? Could I feed my family? Or do I need my boss, the corporation I work for? Do I need government there as a safety net? The leftist is antagonistic to the concept of competition because deep inside he feels like a loser. Now, remember, we went through from 95 up until now a lot of that movement. Everyone gets a trophy. Every kid gets a trophy. There's no competition. I don't want my kids competing. I don't want my kids to feel bad because that parent is a loser and is afraid that his child or her child will be a loser as well. Unfortunately, I think we've gotten past all that stuff. I think they already won that battle. They've turned everyone into a loser, everyone into a victim. I think that was actually the result of years and years and years of this. 17. Art forms that appeal to modern leftist intellectuals tend to focus on sordidness, defeat, and despair, or else they take orgiastic tone, throwing off rational control as if there were no hope of accomplishing anything through rational calculation, and all that was left was to immerse oneself in the sensations of the moment. That's very leftist, right? Living sort of in the moment, emotional, emotional. 18, this is paragraph 18. Modern leftist philosophers tend to dismiss reason, science, objective reality, and to insist that everything is culturally relative. Now remember, as we saw through COVID land, science was even hijacked. And brought into the cultural relativity, right? It's like science became emotion. Anthony Fauci, I am science. I'm going to be talking like him soon. My voice, for some reason, is getting very, uh, very hoarse. It is true that one can speak serious questions about the foundations of scientific knowledge and about how, if at all, the concept of objective reality can be defined. But it is obvious that modern leftist philosophers are not simply cool-headed logicians systematically analyzing the foundations of knowledge. They are deeply involved emotionally in their attack on truth and reality. 
say that again. They are deeply involved in emotionally in their attack on truth and reality. They attack these concepts because of their own psychological needs. This is getting into why the leftists do what they do. For one thing, their attack is an outlet for hostility. And to the extent that it is successful, it satisfies the drive for power, right? Why do they want to do Drag Queen Story Hour? Why do they want to have drag queens sit down and read books to your children? Well, when they win those battles, it satisfies their drive for that power. And we're going to get into power in this paper shortly. More importantly, the leftists hate science and rationality because they classify certain beliefs as true. For example, successful, superior, and other beliefs as false. For example, failed, inferior. The leftist feelings of inferiority run so deep that he cannot tolerate any classification of some things as successful or superior and other things as failed or inferior. See, he can't break these things apart. It's, it's one or the other. And that's sort of what happens with this idea of right and left, like where you have to pick a side, you have to be one or the other, and you'll defend your side no matter what. There's no nuance. This also underlies the rejection by many leftists of the concept of mental illness and of the utility of IQ tests. Leftists are antagonistic to genetic explanations of human abilities or behavior because such explanations tend to make some persons appear superior or inferior to others. Leftists prefer to give society the credit or blame for an individual's ability or lack of it. See, because no one has special skills in their mind. No one is born with the ability to do math or the ability to play basketball. It's all society's fault. Thus, if a person is, quote, inferior, it is not his fault, but society's because he has not been brought up properly. But when you look at a leftist today, if they, if you're not wearing a mask during COVID land or you would not get the jab, then they would look at you as evil, as mean. So you see from 1995 to now, the disease, the mental illness, as Michael Savage has said for years, leftism, uh, liberalism is a mental illness, has progressed. And so let's take a short break. I am Dustin Gold. This is the Dustin Gold Standard on pain.tv. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Payne.tv. Join the discussion at Payne.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Payne.tv. All right, folks. We are back from the break. I am Dustin Gold, and this is the Dustin Gold Standard here on Pain.tv, and we are reviewing a paper called Industrial Society and its future, and we are in the future. It was written in 95. We are here in the present, which is the future, as it relates to this paper, and I want to jump right back into it. 
right back into this paragraph 19 the leftist is not typically the kind of person whose feelings of inferiority make him a braggart an egotist a bully a self-promoter a ruthless competitor this kind of person has not wholly lost faith in himself he has a deficit in his sense of power and self-worth but he can still conceive of himself as having the capacity to be strong and his efforts to make himself strong produce his unpleasant behavior. You see, they are beaten down, but they want to achieve this power. They want to harness power. It's like the technocrats we're dealing with. Ray Kurzweil, Dennis Bushnell, these creepy dudes. Do you look at them as people who seem to have very high self-esteem. I think they, they mask their low self-esteem well. They mask their fears well. And yet they want power over the rest of us, which will help them with their problems, their psychological problems. So in paragraph 19, let's go to one. But the leftist is too far gone for that. His feelings of inferiority are so ingrained that he cannot conceive of himself as individually strong and valuable, hence the collectivism of the leftist. He can feel strong only as a member of a large organization or a mass movement with which he identifies himself. Leftists are very much like this. But as you will see later, people on the right who tend to love sports, also needed to join teams. And you're going to see the psychology behind that as well. Paragraph 20. Notice the masochistic tendency of leftist tactics. Leftist protest by lying down in front of vehicles. They intentionally provoke police or racists to abuse them, etc. These tactics may often be effective, And I forgot to put this up on the screen again, so I'm going to do that for the video audience. Also, I apologize. My throat is very dry right now, and I'm sort of running. I don't know why. I don't know if it's the weather or what it is, but my throat is very, very, very dry, and my mouth is getting to be very dry. Although I am not sick. I do not have COVID or monkeypox. I do not feel sick. It's just my throat is getting scratchy. So let's get back to uh, they intentionally provoke police or racists to abuse them, etc. Now that even goes on today. Look at Black Lives Matter. Look at Antifa. These tactics may often be effective, but many leftists use them not as a means to an end, but because they prefer these tactics. Self-hatred is a leftist trait. Self-hatred is a leftist trait. Right, They prefer the tactics to put themselves in a position to be beat down by someone on the other side. And we will get into this further when I do the analysis between Saul Linsky and his progressivism, what he taught to the leftist community activists, and how that plays in to what these technocrats are doing today. It's a constant push until the very end when humanity is gone. Paragraph 21, leftists may claim that their activism is motivated by compassion or by moral principles. 
and moral principle does play a role for the leftist of the over-socialized type. But compassion and moral principle cannot be the main motives for leftist activism. Hostility is too prominent, a component of leftist behavior. So is the drive for power. Moreover, much leftist behavior is not rationally calculated to be of benefit to the people whom the leftists claim to be trying to help. You got all that? Did you understand what he was saying? Moreover, much leftist behavior is not rationally calculated to be a benefit to the people whom the leftists claim to be trying to help. So what they're actually out there doing in their activism is not really helping those people. Therefore, there was no calculation behind their movements, behind the motives to actually help these people, you see. For example, if one believes that affirmative action is good for black people, Does it make sense to demand affirmative action in hostile or dogmatic terms? It does not, right? Obviously, it would be more productive to take a diplomatic and conciliatory approach that would make at least verbal and symbolic concessions to white people who think that affirmative action discriminates against them, right? So he's talking about compromise or developing a tactic that would in some way be a solution that meets in the middle, therefore to help black people instead of pushing and forcing affirmative action through threats and through violence that gets more white people to actually reject the concept of affirmative action, although essentially they won that between 1995 and today. But leftist activists do not take such an approach because it would not satisfy their emotional needs. See, it's selfishness. I told you, Ray Kurzweil is not helping develop this immortality for you or for me. It is for him. It is to satisfy his own needs. So when these humanitarians come forward, whether out of political movements or out of the technocracy, and try to claim they're there to help you, it is not them trying to help you. It is about greed. But leftist activists do not take such an approach because it would not satisfy their emotional need. Helping black people is not their real goal. Instead, race problems serve as an excuse for them to express their own hostility and frustrated need for power. In doing so, they actually harm black people because the activist hostile attitude towards the white majority tends to intensify race hatred. You see, so when you push and push and push against uh, whatever the majority group is on behalf of the minority, you are actually creating more problems for the minority group that you claim to be helping. But what this whole paper talks about to this point is how the leftists attach themselves to these minority groups, which they perceive to be lesser than the majority. They perceive to be losers. They perceive to be less, and they're fighting for them to be equal to the majority. So the leftist is doing this out of their need for power. Paragraph 22, if our society had no social problems at all, the leftist would have to invent problems in order to provide themselves with an excuse for making a fuss. And this goes to the heart of what we're going to dissect in this Saul Linsky piece 
is we're going to show you how they do invent problems. And Alinsky encouraged his organizers to invent problems. And the way that he explained it is that there's a mountain and there's a series of plateaus on the mountain. And each time you reach a plateau, so you send your organizers out, you send the people in the community out to fight for sidewalks in the neighborhood. And once they reach the goal of getting sidewalks in the neighborhood, they've gotten to plateau one and the fog around the plateau clears. And when you look up, there's another plateau. And then they start on the next mission and the next mission and the next mission. And that's what progressivism is. It never ends. There is no end goal. And so you see this from the right and the left in cities, this idea of constant growth. Republicans will say, let's bring in more business. We need a bigger tax break. Uh, I mean, a bigger uh, tax base. And the left will say, well, we need to grow because we got to house more people. And before you know it, what was once a beautiful little rural town is now overpopulated and disgusting because this concept of progressivism, never a goal in the end. Hey, what's our goal to build a sustainable town? They end up developing a giant unsustainable shithole. And you see this over and over and over. And it's happening in my county back in Maryland. Paragraph 23, we emphasize that the foregoing does not pretend to be an accurate description of everyone who might be considered a leftist. It is only a rough indication of a general tendency of leftism. And when we pick this back up in the next episode, we are going to get into the section on over-socialization. So right now, we just talked about inferiority complex, and then we're going to get into over-socialization. And the reason why we are covering this topic, again, for those of you who may have not picked this up in the beginning, this is a paper called Industrial Society and Its Future, written in 1995, 27 years ago. And it was written by an author that I'll explain to you later on in a future episode. But they were able to really predict the situation that we find ourselves in today, as far as this industrial technological system. They were advocating for a pushback and a revolution against the system back in 95. That never happened. And now we find ourselves here in 2002 with the World Economic Forum classifying the revolution as the false industrial revolution, as Klaus Schwab would say. But remember, the false industrial revolution is designed to push us into even more technology, not as a way to bring back and pull back and harness this technology and to choke it out. Their solution is all the problems that were created by the technology that they created. We now need more technology to manage it. And it always leads to less humanity, the controlling of humanity, genetic modification of humanity, eugenics, population control, and Technology, technology, technology is always the solution to fixing the problems created by the technology that these technological, technocratic monsters have used against us. They create the problems, they provoke the reaction, 
and they offer the solution. And this paper in 95 was so dead on as to where we would be today. It tried to warn us. It tried to tell us what was coming. There were a lot of people that listened. I hear people even quote parts of this today, but no one did anything about it. And now we're allowing the technocrats, the technologists in charge of the system to now run the revolution that's going to push us further into the technological system and further away from humanity. Ladies and gentlemen, I wish you all a good day. I will see you tomorrow. I am Dustin Gold. This is the Dustin Gold Standard. You can follow us at pain.tv slash gold. The Matrix is a computer-generated dream world built to keep us under control in order to change a human being. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on pain.tv. Join the discussion at pain.tv slash gold.